Well, turn to Ephesians 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verses 10 through 20 is what we're going to be looking at today. As we come to this section of Ephesians, we're nearing the end, right? We spent a lot of time in Ephesians. Um, I say nearing the end because there's actually a lot of information in this, this last chapter of Ephesians. Some, some call it the final word, and Paul, Paul actually references it as, as finally. But for five and a half chapters, Paul has been establishing the ideal, right? We've been told in chapter one that we've been adopted as sons, uh, been predestined according to the will of God. And this adoption as sons is meant to convey that we receive the full benefits of adoption, um, as, as, as somebody that would understand in that time, as if we are the firstborn. We're full members of the kingdom of God with all the blessings and privileges that come with such an adoption. In other words, we aren't children of God in a metaphorical sense. We are literally children of God adopted, grafted in. And in chapter 2, we're, uh, Paul tells us that we're fellow citizens of the kingdom of God. We have access to the Father through the Holy Spirit meaning we can petition God as members of his household, not as strangers and aliens, because this house is built on Christ, the chief cornerstone. And in chapter 3, Paul reveals the mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. This isn't just about the Jews. Members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And because of this, you are children of God, citizens of the kingdom of God, but that comes with an expectation that you live like you're a child of God. And then in chapter 4, we get into the, to the, to the meat of the, the implications of the first three chapters. Paul says, I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So we no longer walk as the Gentiles do, because it, but instead we put away falsehood, we speak truth, we don't let the sun go down on our anger. We stop stealing. We avoid corrupt talk. We don't grieve the Holy Spirit. We let all bitterness and wrath and malice be put away, and we're kind to one another. We're tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And then he continues in chapter 5. We're told to imitate God, walk in love, flee sexual immorality, don't covet. Let there be no filthy talk or crude joking. Don't let it come out of your mouth. Don't be deceived by unbelievers. Don't partake in them. Don't partner with them, but walk in light. Don't walk in darkness. Discern what pleases God. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Walk as wise. Don't be drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. Give thanks to God always. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, honor your parents. Parents, don't provoke your children to anger. Slaves, obey your masters. Masters, treat your slaves like they're humans, like they're created in the image of God. And we go through this list, and we walk away, and we're like, Paul. <laughs> Dude, it's impossible. It's impossible. This is the ideal. This is the perfect Christian life that Paul has presented. And we read it, and we meditate on it, and we think to ourselves, how in the world are we ever going to live up to the standard that Paul has set in Ephesians? And then he gets to chapter 6, verses 10, and he says, look, everything I've asked you to do, this life, this standard that appears impossible to live up to, the struggle is real, but it's not impossible. To live this life, you've got to know who your enemy is. And this is not a battle of flesh and blood. 
It's spiritual warfare. So let's read in Ephesians 6.10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, and in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now this sermon today is going to be more of an introduction than an exegesis. Because we're going to take several weeks to work through these ten verses, uh, with some portions being a direct exposition of Ephesians and some being more of a biblical teaching on spiritual warfare. Because there is a lot of confusion about the concept of spiritual warfare, and there's a lot of abuse. There's also a lot of avoidance. But the battle is real. And over the next several weeks, we're going to look at this in Ephesians and address how we fight in a spiritual battle. We're going to look at Satan and his role on earth. What's he do? What kind of power does he have? What do demons do? What do angels do? But primarily, we're going to look at what's our responsibility found in this passage and how we should think concerning spiritual warfare. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, he's got a famous quote on this topic, says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the demons, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So to prepare as soldiers for the battle, the first thing we have to acknowledge is that we're at war. Contemporary science, philosophical naturalism, secular humanism, uh, they've said the world is what you see. Anything unexplained must be because we just don't understand it yet. But there is an explanation. Naturalism is the worldview of the West. Even, even if you don't realize that, you're ingrained in naturalism. Science is God. And we have been assaulted from the time we were born in naturalism. If you can't see it, touch it, taste it, feel it, measure it, study it, then it isn't real. And this has been beaten into our heads since birth. We, we, we appeal to the study, you know, the study says, or science says. And even as Christians, we think like pagans because we give more credit to secondary causes in our speech than we do God as the primary cause of all things. Physical laws are real things. Gravity, inertia, thermodynamics, those are real things. That's part of how God ordered the world. But... If you don't think you think like a pagan, I'm going to give you an example right now. If I ask you to tell me where rain comes from, what would your answer be? 
would, you, would, would your reflex be to say the sun evaporates moisture and it forms in the clouds and the, in which that returns to earth in the form of rain, right? That's where rain comes from, right? Or would you be like Psalm 135 and said, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and earth and the seas and the deeps. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. Who makes lightning for the rain or who brings forth the wind from the treasures? Or would you be like the Puritans and just use the word providence, right? And if you don't know scientifically where rain comes from, go, go look it up. It's not complicated. Uh, we are programmed to think in naturalistic terms. We literally have to reprogram ourselves as Christians to think properly, to think as God, to think automatically as God is the primary cause of all things. But even the unbeliever has been ingrained in naturalism. There is something deep down in them where they know there's something spiritual out there. No, it's rare that you can't have a spiritual conversation with somebody, right? Not necessarily a religious conversation or a Christian conversation, but most people talk to you about spirituality. But you know, if you really want to see proof that humanity understands there's a spiritual world, you can just look at the multi-billion dollar horror movie industry, right? Because if you don't believe somewhere deep down that there's a chance that might be true, it's not scary. It's just silly, right? And, and the first haunted movie, I looked up this week, what was the first horror movie? It was 1896 called The Haunted Castle. I didn't even know they had movies in 1896, but I wasn't around. Some of y'all may know if they were around there. Um, you know, The Shining, Paranormal Activity, the remake of Pet Cemetery, all those things. There's, there, these movies only work, they're only scary because people believe that the supernatural exists. But as Christians, we're, we're caught in this constant battle to find balance between what the Bible teaches and what the world claims is true. And a lot of times in an effort to find balance, we swing the pendulum too far. You know, I believe C.S. Lewis was 100% right that we, we find ourselves in these diametrically opposite positions, even as Christians. Not to magicians and materialists, but in the sense of the wackos on certain TV shows who are just trying to cast the demons out of everything, right? And then those of us who don't ever really consider that there may be anything demonic happening in the first place. And when it comes to spiritual warfare for Christians, there's these, these, this unhealthy interest group and then those that don't consider it. And, and, and th those who don't consider it, you're practically deists, really. Sam Storm said many Christians remain what he called functional deists. They don't deny that God exists or that there's a spiritual realm in which angels and demons are active. They simply live as if neither God nor spiritual beings have any real, genuine, influential interaction with men. And God isn't dead, but he might as well be, because angels and demons might exist, but really, what does that have to do with my life? And for Christians, we've got to find a balance. And there's a lot of confusion and a lot of abuse from both extremes, and I want us to take six or eight weeks and see if we can't find some balance on this concept of spiritual warfare. Now, I'll go ahead and warn you. I say six or eight weeks. It'll be six or eight sermons, but they're going to be kind of scattered, but we'll deal with all that in a couple of weeks. They won't be six or eight in a row. So today, we're going to look at spiritual warfare from Ephesians 6. The excesses and the extremes of certain denominations or Christian TV stations, they've caused this disdain for the subject 
But those excesses don't give us an excuse to ignore the subject. It's real. The battle is real. The spiritual kingdom is real. The demon in every bush group versus those who treat the battle as merely a struggle between truth and falsehood cannot be where we land as a church. Those who blame the devil for every little thing that goes wrong in their life or those who just blame it on human depravity. There's a balance in there somewhere. We've got to find the balance because church, we are at war and it's a spiritual war and it's a war for our souls and the souls of others. And while the victory may be guaranteed, that does not mean we don't have to fight. And that's what Ephesians 6 is teaching us. In fact, God himself is fighting in this battle with us. God, uh, Jeremiah 25 says, God will thunder from his holy dwelling and roar mightily against his land. He will shout like those who tread the grape, shout against all those who live on the earth. And the tumult will resound in the ends of the earth, for the Lord will bring charges against the nations, and he will bring judgment on all mankind and put the wicked on the sword, declares the Lord. And when we get to Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, Paul doesn't dismiss the reality of spiritual powers. There's no moment here where Paul tries to convince us that there's no monster under the bed. In fact, you know what he says? Hey, Christians, there's a monster under the bed. Right? You better be prepared to fight him. And then he seeks to motivate the reader embracing all that they are in Christ, even in the midst of the devil. This is the call to battle. Verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Now, in, in these verses, Paul has condensed all that he's written in the other five chapters into this final appeal. In fact, on the back of your notes that you got, I gave you a quick reference to look at the sermon notes. You can take that home with you, but you can see the parallels between what's happening in these 10 verses in chapter 6 and how Paul is going back and referencing everything he's done in 5 and, and the first part of 6. Um, you can see that. If you, if you just want to take it to, to study more of Ephesians. But Paul is reminding us that we live in the already not yet of spiritual warfare. The time between the resurrection and the second coming. And Satan no longer has dominion, but we are still subject to spiritual attack. You'll, you'll notice that, that we're going to look in depth in the next few weeks that, that our strength is not our strength. It's God's strength. Be strong in the Lord, in his power, his might, and dress for battle. A battle which requires us to stand against what? The schemes of the devil, right? And we'll look at the schemes of the devil in, a, in one particular sermon, but the schemes of the devil would be like this. If God's plan is to create a new society, then their plan is to do whatever they can to destroy it. If God in Jesus Christ has broken down walls dividing human beings of different races and cultures, then the devil and his agents are going to strive to rebuild those walls. And if God intends to reconcile and redeem a people together in harmony and purity that Paul has been teaching us in chapters 4 and 5, then the powers of hell will scatter among us the seeds of discord and sin. 
the first thing we have to do is acknowledge that we're at war. And then the second thing we have to do is dress for battle. So in verse 14, it says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Dressing for battle requires that we take the fight seriously. You, you put on all the armor, the whole armor of God, not just the parts you want. Right? What soldier goes into a battle without a helmet and boots? I mean, if you've ever seen the movies, when the siren goes off, what's the first thing the soldiers do? They don't go running out. They, they put on their gear, and then they head out. You put on the armor before you head into battle. Uh, who runs into battle with no weapon? Satan attacks us in all kinds of ways, and if we protect our head but leave our heart unprotected, he'll go after our heart. If we, if we guard our minds but don't guard our emotions, he'll attack us there. And Brian Borgman said, Satan will attack you sometimes by force or sometimes by fraud, by might or by slight. He'll seek to overcome you, and no unarmed man can stand against him. Never go without all your armor on. For you can never tell where you might meet the devil. He's not omnipresent, but nobody can tell you where he is and where he isn't. His, his troops seem to be found everywhere. And the purpose of the armor is clear. It's clear from this passage. So, so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And the only way to live up to the standard that's being said in chapters 4, 5, and 6 is if we prepare for battle by wearing the full armor of God... The, that he has given us for the fight, the whole armor. Paul, who would have been very familiar with Roman soldiers, considering how much time he spent in prison and how much time he spent walking around with Roman soldiers, following them from prison to prison, chained to them, he lists six pieces of armor. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, Boots of the gospel, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and the helmet of salvation. And we'll discuss these in detail in the coming weeks, but for today, for now, this is what I want you to remember about these. All of this armor is issued to you by God, right? I know commissioned officers in the military have to buy their own uniforms. Just found that out last night when I was trying to find out if you had any idea what I was talking about. And, um, no. This armor is issued you by God. It's a gift. It's a gift of God. Salvation, righteousness, faith, the gospel, the word, all gifts of God. This armor is heavenly issued armor. And there's no clothing allowance. You don't have to buy it online. You don't have to hope they have your size in the commentary. It never wears out. And it is the benefits of being born into the kingdom of God, into the household of God, being a child of God. And God supplies the armor, but we do have a responsibility to put the armor on. We have a responsibility to use it in spiritual warfare that's being waged against the kingdom of God. And once we've got the armor on, we're, we're, we are told in Ephesians 6, verse 18, how to fight the battle. There's a really popular song out right now, and I know Karen and I have joked about it a little bit, and I joked about it. Karen, listen to my jokes. 
Um, there's a real popular song out right now that goes, This is how we fight our battles. You know that song? It may be, I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. That's the whole lyrics. Y'all just heard the whole song. Um, it's catchy. It's got good energy. It's produced well. It's Michael W. Smith. You know, he knows what he's doing. There's just one issue with that song. And I went back and listened to it last night before I picked on it more. The song is called This Is How We Fight Our Battles, but it never tells us in the song how to fight our battles. Right? Just add a verse and tell me how to fight the battle, and I'll sing that chorus with you, Mike. I'll be like, this is how we fight our battles. Right? But here in Ephesians 6, Paul tells us, put on the armor of God, and then pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And you realize you're a soldier in battle and you're fighting the battle. And God is fighting the battle with you, but you're in the fight and we aren't sitting back in the barracks while the rest of the army is out there fighting for us. We're in the heat of the battle, the midst of the battle, because the enemy will come in the barracks with you. And you've received the gift of the armor from God to fight the battle. So the final call is to pray. It's what Martin Luther said of his own struggle during the Reformation when he was faced from every side with threats of death and struggling with loneliness at the task he had. He said, prayer must be the deed. Prayer is the siege engine, the catapult. It's the big guns. Prayer is how we fight the battle. But I got to be honest with you. For some people, prayer comes easy. It does not come easy for me. It doesn't. I envy the people that, I, that fall into what I call the prayer warrior category, right? Maybe it's work for them too, and they just don't tell me how much work it is. But prayer is a lot of work. It requires time. It requires energy. It requires thinking. It requires pouring your heart out to God. It requires fighting in a battle, and fighting in a battle is not easy. And I think too often we don't treat prayer as a spiritual battle. In fact, if I ask you to give me a list of prayer requests right now, how many of those things would be physical versus spiritual? Generally in church, I give me prayer requests. We start with the health requests, right? And we've got some right now, and I encourage you to pray. Pray for Chuck. He's, he's had a rough week. He's, he's, he's doing better, but it's, it's not out of the woods yet. But... We spend so much energy in our Christian battle fighting with our hope placed not in the spiritual, not in prayer, but in the world's method for fighting the battles. We, pray, we, we fight in the voting booth, and we fight in the courts, and we fight in the realm of education with books and debates. And there's nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves. Vote, please. Those things have their place. Unless that's where you've placed your hope. If your hope is in the voting booth, if your hope is in the courts, if your hope's in Washington, you are messed up. I'm just going to tell you. Right? You should be depressed. I'm a little depressed myself. If your hope's in education, if your hope's in books, if your hope's in debates, this is how we're going to win the battle. It's not. It's going to happen on our knees when we put on the armor of God and we go into the fight in prayer. 
And all those things are good, but it's not where we go first. 1 Corinthians 10.3 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. This is the call to battle in prayer, and it's very specific. Pray at all times, with all prayer and supplication, with all perseverance for all the saints. And the heart of spiritual warfare is prayer. And prayer is not a seventh piece of armor. It is the fight. Without prayer, the armor is going to fail you. And we see that in Ephesians 6, that this prayer is constant and it's intense and we're told to keep alert and persevere in prayer and be watchful like a sentry on duty, watching for the enemy to come and remain alert, lest the enemy sneak up on us and kill us. And that's the challenge from Ephesians 6 that we're going to look at over the next several weeks. Are we ready for battle? I want us as a church to be prepared for all the battles that will come our way. And so let's learn together over the next several weeks how to fight these battles. Amen, amen, amen. Well, church, as you know, there's all kinds of battles happening, happening right now in this room. We all struggle with different battles. And my, my challenge to you this morning is we're going to, you guys go ahead and come on up. We're going to sing, sing a song good song about the goodness of God. I want you to take this three and a half minutes and reflect on Ephesians 6. How's God calling you to respond to what you've heard this morning, right? It may be response by coming to, to Rick in prayer, coming to me in prayer this morning. Rick's going to come forward. I'm going to stand up here. If you need prayer this morning, come to us. But the Word of God, the preached Word of God, requires a response. And you can respond in one of two ways. You can listen to what you've heard and do something with it, or you can do nothing with it. And as Proverbs says, wisdom is knowledge in action. Or you can have folly. There's two, two women speak in the book of Proverbs, wisdom and folly. One of them is they did something with what they heard, and the other one is they ignored it, they scoffed at it, or they just... Ignored it altogether. But don't be a scoffer. Consider this morning what you've heard, and let's worship the Lord together as we contemplate Ephesians chapter 6.